Chapter Twelve of Book Three of Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Reed. Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Three, Mud But the Soil, Chapter Twelve. THE GRANDFATHER Bosk and the porter had carried Marius into the drawing-room. As he lay still, stretched out, motionless on the sofa upon which he had been placed on his arrival, the doctor who had been sent for had hastened thither. Aunt Gillenmond had risen. Aunt Gillenmond went and came, in a fright, wringing her hands and incapable of doing anything but saying, "'Evans, is it possible?' At times she added, "'Everything will be covered with blood.' When her first horror had passed, a certain philosophy of the situation penetrated her mind and took form in the exclamation, "'It was bound to end this way!' She did not go so far as I told you so, which is customary on this sort of occasion. At the physician's orders, a camp bed had been prepared beside the sofa. The doctor examined Marius and after having found that his pulse was still beating, that the wounded man had no very deep wound on his breast, and that the blood on the corners of his lips proceeded from his nostrils, he had him placed flat on the bed, without a pillow, with his head on the same level as his body, and even a trifle lower, and with his bust bare in order to facilitate respiration. Mademoiselle Gillemont, on perceiving that they were undressing Marius, withdrew she set herself to telling her beads in her own chamber. The trunk had not suffered any internal injury. A bullet, deadened by the pocket-book, had turned aside and made the tour of his ribs with a hideous laceration, which was of no great depth and consequently not dangerous. The long, underground journey had completed the dislocation of the broken collarbone, and the disorder there was serious. The arms had been slashed with sabre-cuts, not a single scar disfigured his face, but his head was fairly covered with cuts. What would be the result of these wounds on the head? Would they stop short at the hairy cuticle, or would they attack the brain? As yet, this could not be decided. A grave symptom was that they had caused a swoon, and that people do not always recover from such swoons. Moreover, the wounded man had been exhausted by hemorrhage from the waist down, the barricade had protected the lower part of the body from injury. Basque and Nicolette tore linen and prepared bandages. Nicolette sewed them, Basque rolled them. As lint was lacking, the doctor, for the time being, arrested the bleeding with layers of wadding. Beside the bed, three candles burned on a table where the case of surgical instruments lay spread out. The doctor bathed Marius's face and hair with cold water. A full pail was reddened in an instant. The porter, candle in hand, lighted them. The doctor seemed to be pondering sadly. From time to time he made a negative sign with his head, as though replying to some question which he had inwardly addressed to himself. A bad sign for the sick man are these mysterious dialogues of the doctor with himself. At the moment when the doctor was wiping Marius's face, and lightly touching his still-closed eyes with his finger, a door opened at the end of the drawing-room, and a long, pallid figure made its appearance. 
this was the grandfather. The revolt had for the past two days deeply agitated, enraged, and engrossed the mind of Monsieur Gillenormand. He had not been able to sleep on the previous night, and he had been in a fever all day long. In the evening he had gone to bed very early, recommending that everything in the house should be well barred, and he had fallen into a doze through sheer fatigue. Old men sleep lightly. Monsieur Gillemont's chamber adjoined the drawing-room, and in spite of all the precautions that had been taken, the noise had awakened him. Surprised at the rift of light which he saw under his door, he had risen from his bed and had groped his way thither. He stood astonished on the threshold, one hand on the handle of the half-open door, with his head bent a little forward and quivering, his body wrapped in a white dressing-gown, which was straight and as destitute of folds as a winding sheet, and he had the air of a phantom who was gazing into a tomb. He saw the bed, and on the mattress that young man, bleeding, white with a waxen whiteness, with closed eyes and gaping mouth and pallid lips, stripped to the waist, slashed all over with crimson wounds, motionless and brilliantly lighted up. The grandfather trembled from head to foot as powerfully as ossified limbs can tremble. His eyes, whose corneae were yellow on account of his great age, were veiled in a sort of vitreous glitter. His whole face assumed in an instant the earthy angles of a skull. His arms fell pendant, as though a spring had broken, and his amazement was betrayed by the outspreading of the fingers of his two aged hands, which quivered all over. His knees formed an angle in front, allowing through the opening in his dressing-gown a view of his poor bare legs, all bristling with white hairs, and he murmured, Marius! Sir, said Basque, Monsieur has just been brought back. He went to the barricade and— He is dead, cried the old man in a terrible voice. Ah, the rascal! Then a sort of sepulchre transformation straightened up this centenarian as erect as a young man. Sir, said he, you are the doctor. Begin by telling me one thing. He is dead, is he not? The doctor, who was at the highest pitch of anxiety, remained silent. Monsieur Gillemond wrung his hands with an outburst of terrible laughter. He's dead! He's dead! He's dead! He has got himself killed on the barricade out, out of hatred for me! I'll eat it that to spite me! Ah, you blood drinker! This is how it returns to me! Misery of my life! He is dead! He went to the window, threw it open, wide as if he were stifling, and direct before the darkness he began to talk into the street, to the night, pierced, severed, exterminated, slashed, to pieces. Just look at that, that villain. He knew well that I was waiting for him, that I had his room arranged, that I had placed at the head of my bed his portrait taken when he was a little child. He knew well that he had only to come back, that I had been recalling him for years, and that I remained by my fireside, with my hands on my knees, not knowing what to do, and that I was mad over it. 
He knew well that you had but to return and to say, He is I, that you would have been the master of the house, and that I should have obeyed you, and that you could have done whatever you pleased with your numbskull of a grandfather. You knew that well, and you said, No, he is a royalist. I will not go. And you went to the barricades, and you got yourself killed out of malice to revenge yourselves for what I said about Monsieur Le Duc de Paris. It is infamous. Go to bed and then sleep tranquilly. He is dead, as this is my awakening. The doctor, who was beginning to be uneasy in both quarters, quitted Marius for a moment, went to Monsieur Gillemont, and took his arm. The grandfather turned round, gazed at him with eyes that seemed exaggerated in size and bloodshot, and said to him calmly, I thank you, sir. I am composed. I am a man. I witnessed the death of Louis the Sixteenth. I know how to bear events. One thing is terrible, and that is to think that it is your newspapers which do all the mischief. You will have scribblers, chatterers, lawyers, orators, tribunes, discussions, progress, enlightenment, the rights of man, the liberty of the press, and this is the way that your children will be brought home to you. Ah, oh, Marius, it is abominable. Killed, dead before me. A barricade. Ah, oh, the scamp. Doctor, you live in this quarter, I believe. Oh, I know you well. I see your cabriolet pass my window. I am going to tell you. You are wrong to think that I am angry. One does not fly into rage against a dead man. That would be stupid. This is a child whom I have reared. I was already old when he was very young. He played in the Tuileries garden with his little shovel and his little chair. And in order that the inspectors might not grumble, I stopped up the holes that he made into the earth with his shovel with my cane. One day he proclaimed, Down with Louis the Eighteenth, And off he went. It was no fault of mine. He was all rosy and blonde. His mother is dead. Have you ever noticed that all little children are blonde? Why is this so? He is the son of one of those brigands of the Lure, but children are innocent of their father's crimes. I remember when he was no higher than that. He could not manage to pronounce his D's. He had a way of talking that was so sweet and indistinct that you would have thought it was a bird chirping. I remember that once. In front of the Hercules Farnese, people formed a circle to admire him and marvel at him. He was so handsome. It was a child. He had a head that such as you see in pictures. I talked in a deep voice, and I frightened him with my cane, but he knew very well that it was only to make him laugh. In the morning, when he entered my room, I grumbled, but he was like the sunlight to me, all the same. One cannot defend oneself against those brats. They take root of you. They hold you fast. They never let you go again. The truth is, that there never was a cupid like that child. Now, what can you say for your love yet?
your Benjamin Constance, and your Tiricule de Courcelles who have killed him. This cannot be allowed to pass in this fashion. He approached Mars, who still lay livid and motionless, and to whom the physician had returned, and began once more to wring his hands. The old man's pallid lips moved as though mechanically, and permitted the passage of words that were barely audible, like breaths in the death agony. Uh, honest lad, a uh, uh, wretch, a uh, breast. Reproaches in the low voice of an agonizing man addressed to a corpse. Little by little, as it is always indispensable that internal eruption should come to the light, the sequence of words returned, but the grandfather appeared no longer to have the strength to utter them. His voice was so weak and extinct that it seemed to come from the other side of an abyss. It is all the same to me. I am going to die, too, that I am. And to think that there is not a hussy in Paris who would not have been delighted to make this wretch happy. A scamp who, instead of amusing himself and enjoying life, went off to fight and get himself shot down like a brute. And for whom? Why? For the Republic? Instead of going to dance at the chamier, as it is the duty of young folks to do. What's the use of me twenty years old? The Republic a cursed pretty foul. Poor muscles. We get fine boys, too. Come. He's dead. I will make two funerals under the same carriage gate. So, you have got yourself arranged like this for the sake of General Lamarck's handsome ways. What had that General Lamarck done to you? A slasher, a chatterbox, to get oneself killed for a dead man. If that isn't enough to drive anyone mad, just think of it. At twenty, and without so much as turning his head to see whether he was not leaving something behind him. That's the way poor, good old fellows are forced to die alone nowadays. Paris, your corner hour. Well, after all, so much the better. That is what I was hoping for. This killed me on the spot. I am too old. I am a hundred years old. I am a hundred thousand years old. I ought by rights to have been dead long ago. This blow puts an end to it. So all is over with happiness. But it's the good of making him inhale ammonia and all that parcel of drugs. You are wasting your trouble, you fool of a doctor. Come, he's dead, completely dead. I knew all about it. I am dead myself, too. He hasn't done things by half. Yes, this age is infamous. Infamous, and that's what I think of you, of your ideas, of your systems, of your masters, of your oracles, of your doctors, of your scapegoats.
crisis of writers of your rascally philosophers and of all the revolutions which for the last sixty years have been frightening the flocks of cause in the Tuileries. But you were pitiless in getting yourself killed like this. I should not even grieve over your death. Do you understand, you assassin? At that moment, Marius slowly opened his eyes, and his glance, still dimmed by the lethargic wonder, rested on Monsieur Gillenormand. Marius! cried the old man. Marius! My little Marius! My child! My well-being son! You opened your eyes! You gaze upon me! You are alive! Thanks! And he fell fainting. End of Book 3, Chapter 12 Recording by Brian Reed You may find other readings by Brian Reed by visiting his website at http colon backslash backslash readtome.com R-E-I-D, the number 2, M-E, dot com End of Les Miserables, Volume 5, of 5